Hey, Baylife, how are we doing? We doing okay? Yeah? All right. Hey, like he said, my name is Caleb, and I get to be the lead pastor over at Discovery Church, and that's in Simi Valley, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. So all of you are over here on this coast. We're on the other coast. We're just taking care of things together on both ends. So uh, really glad to be with you. Um, I know a lot about you. I love your senior pastor. love Daniel. You don't know a lot about me, so I'm going to tell you about me if that's okay. I love movies, and I'm not talking about Redbox. I'm talking about going to a dark, creepy movie theater where you don't know people's criminal background and sitting next to them for two or three hours. That's my idea of a good time. And when my wife and I first got married, we went to movie after movie after movie, but then something happened that kind of interrupted our movie flow. You see, we tried to get pregnant. No matter what happened, we couldn't get pregnant, and we kind of went into a depression. We handled our depression in different ways. I threw myself into my work, and my wife, she was a lot more destructive in her depression. Started watching Hugh Grant movies and chick flicks and Notebook, and it, it's not funny. It's an epidemic, and so there's only so much Hugh Grant you can take in your house before you're like, we got to get this figured out. We're going to get you pregnant one way or another. Um, you know, if, if God bless the Virgin Mary, this is going to happen. We just know it. So we went to a fertility clinic, and we got uh, my wife pregnant on the very first try with our son, Joel, who's now nine, and our second try with our daughter, Rachel, who's seven. And I love both of them equally, but I got to tell you about Joel's birth, because I was so excited uh, to be a dad, and I could not wait to get to the hospital and to see the, the pregnancy, the birth, because I had seen the movies. I knew exactly what would happen. I knew that this light would come down from heaven and there'd be this underscoring John Williams music and the baby would come out pristine clean and grab my finger and we would lock eyes and it would say, Daddy, and that is not what happened. <laughs> we got to the hospital and everything was great until the pain hit my wife and she became somebody I had not exchanged vows with at that point. <laughs> and I put my hand on her shoulder to try to comfort her and she said, don't you touch me right now. And I said, okay, Emily Rose, Linda Blair, whatever your name is, I'm going to waiting for her head to spin around. The doctor came in and gave her drugs, and she went back to loving God and others at that point. <laughs> and everything was great, again, until it was time for my son to come into the world. And the doctor came in, and she spread a big plastic mat all over the floor. And she and the nurses are putting on what looked like body armor and a welding mask. And I said, went up to the doctor. I said, is something getting ready to explode? Because I'm uncovered. No, Dad, don't worry about it. So the doctor gets in the football position to catch my son as he comes into the world. And literally, when I saw him come into the world, my expression went from this to... I was like, whoa! Oh, mm. I mean, good night. I saw things I didn't even know existed on that day. It was like watching an alien movie with Sigourney Weaver. He came out, and he looked like Dan Aykroyd with, like, the cone head from Saturday Night Live. He was this color that Crayola had not invented a crayon for. He, he had slime on him that I had never seen, smelled weird, made the most annoying noise. And I'm like, just, I mean, his head was like this, and they wrapped him, and I'm just like, oh my goodness, now I know why they don't show this in the movies. And they give him to me, and I don't have much of a filter, and so they said, what do you think? And I'm looking at him, and I said, he looks like a turtle. And when my daughter was born, she looked like this big, red, juicy ladybug. And if you had been there, you would have said, that's messy, and I would have agreed with you. He's my little turtle weirdo that I'm holding here in this moment. But something happened in that moment. And I don't know where it came from, but I just loved my child. And some of you get that. That this love just came from, any, from somewhere. And it didn't matter how messy he was. It didn't matter what he looked like or smelled like. I just loved this little kid. You know what? I think some of the times it's easy to love a little baby when they're messy. Because we love our kids, right? And then they become teenagers. But we love our kids. 
But it's much more difficult to deal with the messy people in your life that you have to deal with on a daily basis that you're not related to, I mean, in the fact that they're not your kids, right? It's much more difficult when you go to work and you're going to the restroom, taking a break, and you see that one person walking down the hallway and you're like, good night, and you just turn around. You're like, I can hold it for like another hour and be in pain. That's better than chewing my way out of that conversation right there. Some of you are going to go to Starbucks, and you see that one person that really drives you nuts. You're going to go to the gym. You're going to see, like, a couple people. You're like, I'm going to put my earphones in and just be in the zone right here so nobody bothers me. I'm not going to make eye contact. We all have these people in our lives that are messy, that are difficult to deal with, people that maybe we label or they label us or we categorize or maybe they categorize us. And here's the good news. This week is Thanksgiving, right? So you're going to have some of these people in your house. And the only reason why is because somebody in your family shares DNA with them, so it's their fault, not yours. And then others of you, you're going to spend money to fly or drive somewhere to spend time with people that annoy you. That's fun, right? To spend money on stuff like that. And for some of us, the messy people are the people that we're related to. Others of us, the messy people are the ones that we're married to. And, and we got in a fight on the way over here to church. And then we come in the church building, you put your gay face on. And all the while, during worship, we're like, you better listen right here. God's talking to you, right? Here, here's what I believe. Here's what I believe. With what we're going to look at today, okay? If this is your first time to church, maybe you haven't been in a while. Maybe you had a bad church experience. And maybe you don't even know where you stand with God. And you just know that church has always been something that is a little annoying. And then you come here, and you don't know all the songs, and you're not sure what the tables mean, and... You know, you, you like what you see, but you're just kind of like, man, this isn't the church I grew up with, or this isn't what church, you know, what I thought church would be all about. This is a great church to come to, and I think what we're going to talk about today is going to be something that you're going to appreciate if you're not used to going to church, and hopefully it's something that can maybe help you take some d- steps in the direction of Jesus, where you could say, Christians have always gotten on my nerves, but maybe I could give you know, church to try, and maybe even take a step towards God if this is what we're talking about, because I think what we're going to unpack today about how do we handle messy people in our lives, those who are difficult, those we disagree with, those we dislike, or those who, you know, don't like us. I think that when we look at what we're going to look at today, even if you're not a Christian, you're going to resonate with it. And then there are some of you, you have been a Christian for a while. And if we're going to be honest, you've been a Christian since God was a boy. That's how long you've been a Christian. And you know everything to do when you come to church. You know when to stand up, you know when to sit, you know how many songs. You're like, oh, they're behind time, because you just know right? Or you're like, okay, we've got to beat the Methodists over the buffet. Let's keep, come on, let's go. <laughs> but I think we forget what we're going to talk about today, because what we're going to talk about today, listen, it is at the core of our Christian faith. It is something, I think, that separates us from every other philosophy, religion, or idea out there. And so to really understand how to deal with the messy people in our lives and what I'm talking about, go ahead, if you have your Bibles or your mobile devices, and turn to John chapter 8. If you don't, that's okay, because we're going to have the words on the screen in just a second. But in John chapter 8, let me just set the scene for you a little bit, and let me just tell you what's going on. John is the fourth book of the New Testament. It's the fourth gospel. Gospel literally means good news. And there are four gospels, and each two of them are written, written by eyewitnesses, and the other two are written by people who got eyewitness testimony. And so a gospel is a collection of some of the sayings and some of the actions of Jesus. And what we're looking at today, John, he was actually a student of Jesus, or what we call a disciple, a learner of Jesus. He followed Jesus around during his ministry for those three years. And so he wrote down in his account of Jesus' life things that he saw Jesus do and say, wrote down some of them because he thought that they were pertinent, and 
he records a lot of things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record in their Gospels, but John, he records them in, in his Gospel. And if you're not used to reading about Jesus, let me just forewarn you, okay? If Jesus came for the first time today, I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt he would have his own TV reality show. I just really am. You know, keeping up with Christ. I think that's what it would be because incredible things happen to Jesus, right, that don't happen to anybody else. And you read it and you're like, oh my goodness, this would be a good sitcom because it's like thing after thing. And this is one of these instances but we're going to learn a very important lesson that's going to help you with the messy people in your life, and it's going to help me too. Look at John 8, verse 2. It says, Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? In the beginning of verse 6, it just drives me nuts right here. It says, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, if you're not familiar with who these characters are, you have the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, there were some 6,000 Pharisees back in Jesus' day. And they're like the celebrity pastors of the day. But then the scribes, they're like the Bible college, the seminary professors. They have their PhDs in like theology, religion. They're the, you know, smarty pants. And these people have the Old Testament memorized and commentaries on the Old Testament memorized and even more memorized. And they don't like Jesus because the message of Jesus is all about freedom. Freedom that you can have in a real relationship with God. And so they want to trap him. So they find this woman caught in the act of adultery. We don't know how they find her. They're creepers. And they take her, and they drag her through town. They put her at the feet of Jesus. They say, hey, in the law, Moses told us that we can stone such women. And they're right. It was a different historical time, a different context, and for different reasons we don't have time to go into today. But Deuteronomy 22, God gives Moses permission. If you catch a man or woman in the act of adultery, take them outside the city gates and stone them. Did you hear what I said? A man or a woman. And I read this story. I'm like, where's the dude? I mean, did he get a get-out-of-jail-free card? And I guess what really makes me mad is that they're using this woman as much as the man who's having an affair with her was using her. They don't care if she lives or dies. They're supposed to be the religious leaders. They don't care about restoring her or finding out what's going on in her life. That's messed up. Now, if I were there, I can be a little emotionally reactive. I'll start spitting out words when I get mad, and then everybody's a casualty, okay? Just everybody. And some of you can relate with that. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus does something, it's a little weird. If you're not used to reading the Bible, you might really think it's weird. And some of you are like, Caleb, do not do that. Do not call what the Lord says, does is weird. I didn't say it was strange bad. I didn't say it was stranger things. I said it was weird. Look at this, right here, right? Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. That's awkward. You say, no, it isn't. Oh, really? When was the last time you were in an argument with your spouse or a friend? You're like, hold on. Right? I tried it last week with my wife, Amy. Did not go over well. Don't try it, guys. They will not think it's cute either. So a lot of scholars have tried to figure out what he was writing on the ground. Some people think that maybe he was writing down sins of the people in the crowd. Other people think maybe he was writing down verses of Scripture. But I found this really interesting verse all the way back in the Old Testament that God spoke through a prophet named Jeremiah. And I think this verse will help us interpret maybe what Jesus was doing. See if you can make the connection here. Jeremiah 17, 13. It says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame, and those who turn away from you will be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. 
And my personal opinion is that ESV could translate this better. It's not the word earth right here. You know what it could also be translated as? Dirt, dust, mud, ground. If I was a betting person, would Jesus bent down and write on the ground with his finger? I think he was writing the names of the Pharisees and the scribes in the ground. I think he was saying, you think this woman is outside of, of the reach of God's grace because of her sin, but you are because you have all truth but no love, no grace. You don't care about her. Look, even if you are not sure that Jesus is the son of God yet, you got you to gotta at least agree he's got mad skills, right? He can argue his way out of anything. I mean, the guy's smart, but they would understand this. They would understand what he was doing, and they get more mad, and they keep on talking to him. We see this in verse 7 and 8. It says, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down, and he wrote on the ground. Now, you don't even have to go to church on a regular basis to understand this, because we've seen this before, right? You know, they're casting stones. You without sin, throw the first stone. But what we don't see what we don't see is the theological brilliance of what Jesus is saying, because Jesus makes a statement, is basing this on a theological idea that hopefully most Christians in here would agree with, that God is the only sinless being in existence, that he cannot sin, that he is the only sinless being. And the Pharisees and the scribes believed that back then, just like many Christians were supposed to today. And so they would not pick up a rock because, number one, if they picked up a rock and threw it, they would be guilty of lying because they would say they're sinless, but they believe God was only sinless. And by the way, out of the 630 commands, God thought lying was such a big deal that he put it in the top 10. You know, remember the top 10? Remember Moses went up to get him? He looked like Charlton Heston, brought him back down and broke him. Remember that? Yeah. But there's a second reason. is that if they picked up a rock and threw it, that same rock would be used to throw right back at them because they'd be suffering capital punishment. Because if they believe that God is the only sinless being, and if they claim to be sinless, they would be committing blasphemy and claiming to be God. And at that very moment, they would experience death themselves. So none of them is going to pick up a rock. Like I said, Jesus has got mad skills when he's reasoning. Better than me. I mean, seriously, somebody says something to me, three hours later, I'll think of a comeback and I'll text it to him. Loses its effect. Not the same thing. Wouldn't want to get in an argument with Jesus. And you can see the result here in verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now, verse 11 is the whole reason why we've gone through this passage. If you're going to pay attention to anything in this passage, pay attention to verse 11. Verse 11 really is the formula. It helps us understand how to love and how to deal with the messy people in our lives, the difficult ones, the ones who are different from us, the ones who drive us nuts, the ones that we're going to be hanging out with for Thanksgiving, okay? You need to pay attention to what Jesus says in verse 11. You remember? He says right here in verse 10, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? In the beginning of verse 11, she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You see, in this one statement right here, Jesus perfectly handles how to love messy people in our lives because we're messy too, right? First two letters of messy, M-E, messy, me, right? But what it, it's hard for, other for us to love other people, and he says that we need to do it in grace and in truth. Therefore, neither do I condemn you. Grace, sin no more, truth. As a matter of fact, in the beginning of John's gospel, in John 1, 14 and 17, Jesus, it, it said that Jesus came full of both grace and truth. And he could handle that perfectly because he's God. But us, on the other hand, 
We can't really do that. Maybe you can resonate with that. I, I really think there are really two types of people. Either you're, you're somebody who's all about the mercy or you're somebody who's all about the rules, right? Anybody all about the rules in here? You know somebody? Anybody know all about the mercy? Let's use Christianese terms, okay? There are some of us who are all about the grace and all about the truth over here on this side. And you can tell these people. And I want to make a statement here, and I know some of you may not agree with me on this, and that's okay. I mean, my wife doesn't agree with me on everything. I wish she would, but she doesn't, believe it or not. I know it's hard to believe. But here's what I believe. That if we take sides between grace and truth, if we're a grace person or a truth person, if we say, well, I'm just all about the Bible and theology, or I'm just all about the grace, here's what I want to say. I think we're lazy, I think we're immature, and I think we're weak, and I think we may claim to be strong, but you're not fooling anyone, except for other people who are weak. You know what it's like when you take sides? Because Jesus didn't take sides, right? He stood for both grace and truth. You know what it's like? It's like holding a rubber band by one end over here, when you say, I'm all about the grace, but no truth, it's weak, it's flimsy. When you just say, you know, I'm all about the grace. And, and look, we love these people, but they're annoying, right? God loves you. God loves everybody. God loves this person. God just wants us all to get along. God loves, God loves, God loves. And eventually in my head, I think, wow, their version of God must be Buddy the Elf. I mean, honestly, some of these people over here. But then you have the people on the truth side, right? And we love you, but you're just as annoying and you know the Bible, and you want us to know that you know the Bible. And you, you care about Scripture, and that's such a good thing, okay? But calm down, okay? And you can tell these people, because when they say the name Jesus, they add extra syllables to it. It's not Jesus, it's Jesus, and they talk about the Lord like this. But it's weak, it's flimsy when you say I'm all about the truth, but no grace. Look where the power is. If you say, I'm about the grace and the truth, Where's the power? The power's in the tension of the two. And tension's uncomfortable. And that's why we take sides, because who wants to live in uncomfortability? Who wants to live in tension? And you feel this tension. It's like, man, I love my friend, but God's word says this, but my friend is doing this, but God says we should do this, and my friend and God, and we feel this tension all the time. You know what this tension is? It has a name. It's love. You see, I believe that love is the tension of both grace and truth. And I think that when we decide to not take sides and stand for both grace and truth and live in the tension of the two, I think that we're standing for love. And I think we're going to confuse people because there are times when we're going to be gracious and times when we're going to be truthful. And if you confuse people, good for you because so did Jesus, right? There are times when you expect him to be gracious and he's truthful and vice versa. And by the way, if you're a Christian and you're like, I don't know if I'm on board with what you're saying, it's not like you don't already live in tension already in your faith, because you believe in one God but the Trinity, like there's no tension there. You believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human. You believe that God wrote the Bible, but so did people. You believe that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, but we have works. You believe we're supposed to love God, love people, that God is in control, but he gives us responsibility, that evil was uh, defeated at the cross and resurrection, but it's not destroyed yet, that you can be a good preacher and still have hair. Come on, there's tension. <laughs> In our faith. So if there's tension in our faith, why should there not be tension with how we deal with people on a regular basis? You see, this is how we live and, and handle the messy people in our lives. We live in the tension of both grace and truth. That's how we love messy people. So let me tell you about the messy people in my life. It's my mom and my dad. You see, when I was two years old, my parents got a divorce, and both of them went into same-sex relationships. 
And my dad was never in a monogamous relationship. He was in several different relationships. And I didn't find out about him until like right around college or afterwards. But my mom, she was very loud and proud. Uh, she uh, found a, a lady named Vera, who's a psychologist. They moved to Kansas City. And uh, they were together 22 years in a monogamous relationship until Vera died of cancer. And, and they were very, very activist-oriented. They both joined the local board of directors for GLAD in the Kansas City area. Um, they, I grew up in Kansas City and Columbia. Go Chiefs. I see that hand. God has blessed you today. God has blessed you. Yes, yes. I, say, I, I confirm what the Lord has done here today, right here. And so they took me with them when I was in preschool and elementary age to uh, gay bars and clubs and campouts and parties and events. And I spent my childhood growing up in the LGBTQ community. And, and I remember one time when I was in elementary school, I marched in a gay pride parade with my mom and Vera. And at the end of the parade, there were all these Christians holding up signs saying, God hates you. There's no room for you. And if that wasn't offensive enough, they were spraying water and urine on everybody. And I looked at my mom. I said, why? And she said, well, Caleb, they're Christians, and Christians hate gay people. And I thought, man, I never want to be one of those. And my dad took me to an Episcopal church, and not all Episcopal churches are like this. We went every now and then when he felt guilty enough to go. But we never talked about Jesus or the Gospels or anything. And I saw this replicated again and again, the Christians hate gay people. I saw parents in hospital rooms watching their gay sons die of AIDS and having no compassion, no sympathy, not talking to them or anything. And I just thought, I never want the word Christian to describe me. And when I got to be 16 in high school, my life was out of control because my parents really didn't give me guardrails and I was sneaking out, I was partying. I mean, my hair was down to here. At the Why it's got to be like that? <laughs> I don't get it. Look, I understand, but since then, the Lord removeth and addeth other places. Um, I don't know why he's done that, but we don't talk about it. So, so I got invited when I was in high school. I got invited by a high schooler to go to a Bible study led by this high schooler, four high schoolers, and I thought, this is perfect. I'm going to go, and I'm going to be a pretend Christian, and I'm going to learn about the faith, and then dismantle it. And that was, like, going to work. Yeah, it turned out well, right? So I didn't have a Bible. I grabbed one of my dad's old dusty Bibles off the shelf, and I took it with me to this Bible study. you got to understand, it was weird walking in a conservative or evangelical Christian household. 16 years of my life, I had never been inside an evangelical or Christian uh, household before. And I'm walking in, and God bless these people. They're probably great people, but it looked like they had raided a Bible bookstore. And... Um, I walk in, and I'm just like, over to my friend, I'm like, why is there a framed picture of a sheep and lions and Bible verses? I said, this is strange. I said, I've never walked into a house and seen a sheep picture before. It was framed and hanging on the wall. I said, is that part of the deal? If I turn Christian, do I have to get a sheep picture? <laughs> and so we went down. Everybody was reading from 1 Corinthians, and they get to me, and I'm in 1 Chronicles. Does anyone even know there was a 1 Corinthians? I read story, you know, verse about somebody being impaled. And um, they said, Caleb, where are you? And I said, I'm in First, uh, First Chronicles. And they said, oh, you're in the Old Testament. I said, so does that mean there's a new one? There's updated 2.0? I mean, I had no clue. And I was embarrassed, but I kept on going back. And here's what I learned. That Jesus was not like people on the street corners or in the hospital rooms. That he was somebody that had very deep theological convictions and expectations for how we should live our lives. But Jesus also had very deep, meaningful relationships with people who were far from God. 
And I was like, how can you get on board with that? And the more that I studied Jesus, I knew that I would have to really come to terms with what the Bible had to say, interpreted in its correct context about uh, relationships, gender, marriage, homosexuality, and sexuality in general. And I came to this conclusion that I still hold today, and our church does, that God designed sexual intimacy for the expression between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. But I also came to this conclusion that I still hold today, and so does my church, that a biblical belief should never be the basis to devalue another person. That our biblical belief should never drive us to devalue anybody. And that we can be right about what we believe, but wrong about how we carry it out. And, and then, not too long after that, I, I came to the conclusion that I wanted to be a pastor, too. And so I had not yet told my parents. And if you can imagine how a gay or same-sex attracted teenager feels coming out to their conservative Christian parents, I was a 16-year-old coming out as a Christian to my three gay parents. I was coming out to them. And um, here was the result. They kicked me out of the house. The same treatment that some people have gotten from their Christian parents, I got from my LGBTQ parents because they were becoming the very people that they feared, no tolerance, but it was interesting. Eventually, they let me back in, their good graces, but it was interesting. The more that I studied Jesus during that time, it was hard, but I learned that a relationship with Jesus gives us margin to love the unlovable and forgive the unforgivable. That our differences should never drive us away from people, it should drive us to people so we can have dialogue and learn from each other. And so I went back, and eventually I went to Bible college in southern Missouri. Have you ever been to southern Missouri before, anybody in here? I could only stay so long, one person, yeah, then you'll understand this. I'm from Missouri, so I can rip my own state. Um, look, most states and most places you go to, when you look at a person's family tree, it branches out. In southern Missouri, it's just one straight line. It goes straight up like this. And I was just like, man, i got to get out of here. And I got to preach at a whole bunch of different churches when I was in southern Missouri. First church I ever preached at while I was a freshman in Bible college had six people in it. The youngest one was 60. They wanted me to start a youth group. It was going to be great. We're going to have a youth group of 40-year-olds in the church. And then the next church I preached at, I ended up staying at for 18 months. And we had 25 people in the church, 50 people in the town. We were the largest church per capita in the world at that time, I'm convinced. And I, and I kept on trying to get my mom to come to church. And finally one day she came. And we had a huge spike in the attendance from 25 to 26. Never been that high since. The next Sunday, she didn't show up, but two elders were waiting for me on the doorstep, and they said, we'd like to talk to you. And I said, sure. They took me in the back room, and they said, Caleb, if you want to keep preaching here, don't you ever bring somebody like your mother again. And I said, excuse me? They said, we don't like those people. And I said, well, I don't like you. I quit. I'm done. I'm not going to do it. They said, well, we need you to preach today. I said, oh, you don't want that. I mean, trust me, out of all the things that you do not want that. No, we need you to do it. So I did. I rolled up my sleeves, and I preached the best sermon that I could on evangelism. And as I was walking out of that church for the last time, I thought to myself, God, if you give me the chance to be a pastor, I want to pastor a church filled with messy, broken people, filled with people who are cutting, people who are depressed, people who are addicted, people who think they have their lives together, people who are questioning their sexuality, trying to figure out their sexuality, people who have been hurt, people who are in gangs, people who are, uh, who are financially broke, who are having problems in their marriage, who are divorced, who are thinking about abortions, who have had abortions. I want a church filled with messy, broken people because that's that's what glorifies God, is a church like that. 
And, and hear me out on this. Some of you may not agree with me on this, but this one I think I'm dead even right on, and I'll stake everything I have on it, okay? Jesus Christ did not come to die on the cross for a church that looks like a church on the outside, but on the inside is really a members-only country club or a Pharisee factory. And we have too many of those. And I never wanted to be part of a church where it would be awkward and weird for me to bring my unchurched family and friends. Never again. And so I left Southern Missouri, went out to Southern California, Los Angeles. I was there for 11 years. Amazing thing happened. I got married there. Found a beautiful woman. She's, she's so beautiful. She is, she is tan, toned, in shape, tall, muy caliente Latina named Amy. And in her wildest imagination, she had no clue that her knight in shining armor would look like a cross between Dr. Evil and Fester and Gru. She had no clue. <laughs> she is a lucky lady. This is what she wakes up to. This is her eye candy. Don't envy her. And so in 2010, I, in 2005, my, wife's, uh, my mother's partner died. And I tried to share the gospel with her one last time, and she didn't accept. Unless a miracle happened, she went to a Christless eternity. And so my family, you know, and I, we went and tried to be there for my mom. And a few years later, in 2010, I really wanted to preach. I'd been in Los Angeles for 11 years, so I went to Dallas, Texas. Um, we found a church. My wife wanted to get her counseling degree from a seminary, so we moved to Texas. Because everybody's got to go to purgatory once, right? Um, no, look, I love Texas. It's just the mosquitoes and the snakes and the humidity and the mavericks and the cowboys. Other than that, it's a great place. And so when I was there for three and a half years, went to a church and the church grew, but my parents separately of one another moved close to be with our family in Dallas. And I was just like, this is weird because since I was two, I've never had my parents in a five to 10 mile radius of my house. And then what was even more weird is they said, Caleb, can we start attending your church? And I was like, these are the same people who make fun of TV evangelists and radio preachers, and I still do, but they would make fun of them, right? And I'm just like, you've got to be kidding me. You wanna to come to my house, sure. And when they started coming to church, they liked it, and they joined small groups, and people were nicer to my parents than I was. Do you know how annoying that is? <laughs> Look, even if you have a great relationship with your parents, when people are nicer to them than you, it's annoying, because you're like, these people are trying to get into heaven. You don't know these people. I do. And then two weeks in the summer of 2013, before we left to go lead Discovery Church, where we're at now in Simi Valley in Southern California, two weeks before we left, both my parents submitted their lives to Christ, gave their lives to the Lord. And I think about it, and I'm like, man, it's messy. It's weird, right? I mean, do they love God? Yes. Do they believe in Jesus? Yes. Do I think they're saved? Yes. Do they believe everything that I believe theologically? No. I don't know that you and I would agree on everything theologically if we got down to it. Do they go to church or Bible study when they can? When they can. Sometimes they're not able to, but when they can. Are they in the same-sex relationship? No. Are they same-sex attracted? Yes. Will they slip up? Maybe. I don't know. How does all that go together? I don't know. It's messy. God's never called me to be Sherlock Holmes. God's never called me to try to figure it out. God's called me to live in the tension of grace and truth. And so here are just some quick takeaways. You want to write them down, take a picture, or just ignore them. That's fine with me. But this is what I see from Jesus' story, and hopefully this helps you. Number one, change your posture. I think many of us need to change our posture. If you don't believe me, look on Facebook. 
during the election, you let me know if people need to change their posture. Be known for what you're for, not against. Be known for what you're for, not against. We, in, we here in America, we're so good at letting people know what we're against. Do you know what Jesus was good at? He was good at standing for truth and letting people know what he was for, except when he was talking to the religious zealots. Then he got pretty gnarly, but never with people who were far from God. When this woman had this affair, notice what Jesus did. Did he act like a jerk? Did he wag his finger like this? Did he say, you don't do this? No, he still stood for truth. Go and sin no more. But it proves a point that we can change our posture, right? I think it is Paul in Romans 12, 18. He says, hey, as much as, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Paul says in Romans 2, 4, for don't you know that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance? How much more should our kindness lead people to God? And I think that we can stand for truth and not be a jerk. That's what I really think. Number two is this. A theological conviction shouldn't be a catalyst to treat someone less. Were the Pharisees right in what they believed about this woman sinning and having an affair? Yes. But they were wrong in how they carried it out. You see, you can be right in your theological belief and orthodox in what you believe, but commit heresy by how you carry it out. And I think there are a lot of us, we commit heresy on a regular basis because we don't treat people well. And actually, we fear people. By the way, did you know that homophobia is a sin? Did you know that? You know why? The Bible says fear two things, God and nothing. And so, if we're homophobic, I'm just letting you know you need to repent. Get right with God, because that's a sin, 100%, just as much as same-sex intimacy. Look at number three right here. Think deeper about the person, but not differently about theology. Jesus, I think, thought deeper about this woman. He thought deeper about Nicodemus in John 3. He thought deeper about the woman at the well in John chapter 4, but he did not change his theology. A lot of the times we don't like the tension, so we try to handle the tension by either distancing ourselves from our loved ones because we don't agree, or we'll change our theology. You shouldn't do either. You can stand for both. Think deeper about the person. I'll give you an example. When I went to go visit my mom when her partner was dying, and I, I did not want this conversation to happen. I didn't bring it up. I felt awkward, and now I want you to feel awkward. So I'm not the only one. My mom and I were talking, then she brought the conversation in a rogue, rogue direction. She said, well, Caleb, you know, Vera and I, we haven't been sexually intimate for years. No, well, first of all, gross. You know, I mean, I don't care who your mom is with. That's disgusting. I don't want to hear my mother tell me that, okay? I told her, I said, ooh, no, mom, a stork brought me. You, no touching between you and dad. A stork brought me. I don't know how you all got here. I got here by a stork. But I was really dumb in that moment. And I said, okay, well, you're not a lesbian anymore. And she said, well, sure I am. That's my community. Those are my people. I have relationships there. I'm part of a cause and a movement. And people understand me, you know, and they don't treat me horribly. And I said, well, mom, you could go to church. You just described the church. And she said, no, I can't. Why would I go somewhere where people would treat me less? And it really dawned on me at that point that while, yes, same-sex intimacy is a sin, guess what? The church offers everything the bigger way that people identify as LGBTQ, right? Acceptance, love, um, offers uh, forgiveness, offers walking on a journey together, offers God, part of a cause and a movement. But we won't realize that if we don't think differently about people. 
And some of you heard me say the word acceptance there, so that brings me to number four right here. Love relies on acceptance, not agreement. Love relies on acceptance, not agreement. I think there's a big difference between acceptance and approval, between acceptance and agreeing with somebody, okay? Acceptance never determines treatment. Acceptance is different. Acceptance is loving somebody for who they are, where they are in the moment, and knowing you can't change them. And, and I, I would come close to almost saying it's a biblical mandate to accept people. If you don't believe me, read Matthew 5, 38 through 48, where Jesus says, hey, you've heard there was said, hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5, 46, if you only love those who love you, what reward will you get? Anyone can do that. I think it's weak not to. But just because I accept someone, understanding that I love them where they are, doesn't mean that I agree with everything they do. You don't agree with everything that everybody does in your family. You know, you have to accept someone to love them. Acceptance, it's fueled by love. But that doesn't mean it's fueled by approval. I tell my church all the time, you don't have to agree with us to be with us. And we want to be a place where you can belong before you believe, where it's okay not to be okay. We want to be a place where people, no matter who they are, learn how to take their next step with God. And people who are carrying a difficult burden can come on Sundays and be in rows and during the week can gather in circles and learn how to take their next step with God while carrying a difficult burden. Because I think Jesus would do that. I could be wrong, but I think he would. Look at number five. Last thing, stop trying to fix people. Just point them to Jesus. The one thing the Pharisees and scribes did right, they brought her to Jesus. This is one thing they did right. You know, the Bible's never called me to make anybody straight. The Bible's never called me to cure someone's depression. The Bible's never called me to get somebody's finances into order. I'm not good at changing lives. I had to admit that when I repented and submitted my life to Christ. That actually, I'm really good at messing up my life. I don't know about you. If you claim to follow Jesus, that means that you messed up your life too. You're not good at it. So why would we take responsibility for somebody else's life? We can't. You know what we can do? Although, we can't point people to Jesus. That doesn't mean that we don't have difficult conversations. But the most difficult conversations are the ones who, that are had in the midst of trust and relationship. When people know you care about them, they'll listen to you. Love is the tension of grace and truth. Let's live in messy grace. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you. Thank you so much for this time that we have together. I pray, Father, that as we get ready to go from here, that we would be people who understand that maturity and wisdom are found living in the tension, not taking sides. I pray that we would be people who would be okay with being uh, inconsistent and confusing people because that's what your son did. Too much is at stake to take sides. Help us to live in grace and truth. It's in your son's name I pray, amen. God bless you guys. Have a good week. We'll see you next weekend.